All right. So I'm Pastor Michael. I wanted to share that as I as we were singing the third song, There's a Fountain, I was just overwhelmed by the beauty of the worship service that we, we can gather together in this cathedral of nature. And as I was sitting there, the sunlight, you know, dappling through the leaves, I was just so amazed. And I want everyone to know um, how amazing it is. I, I was um, talking with a brother, uh, a fellow pastor in Presbytery, and we were catching up, and, and I was explaining to him what we were doing, and at a certain point, he stopped me and said, hold on, wait a minute, you're doing a live stream at the park. And his astonishment reminded me of what an incredible technical feat it is that we are able to broadcast this worship service live without any Ethernet cables connected to a secure Internet source. Uh, but we're doing it at the park. And I, I think that's really a remarkable thing. And I really want to express my appreciation to David and to June for somehow pulling it off. Um, I know they I know particularly David has aged a few years trying to make it happen. But um, we're doing a uh, sermon series in the Gospel of John. And um, we've been looking at what are called the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And last week, we saw that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Um, he, in fact, he appears to her first. And that's intentional and very significant. And then in our passage today, he appears to his disciples. And this text is, I want you to know, it's a very important passage. And there's a lot going on. Because in these five short verses, you basically have John's version of the Great Commission. You have John's version of Pentecost. And then you have John, the Gospel of John's instructions on church government and church discipline. And I want you to know these are all major doctrines. And, and I want to show you that they are all consequent to the resurrection. They all flow out of the resurrection. And we're going to go through each of these and we're just going to follow the order of the text. We're just going to go verse by verse. And there's a lot to be said. I mean, each one of these topics deserves its own sermon, its own sermon series. But I'm just going to give a very brief treatment on each of them. And I'm just going to do a sort of bird's eye view. And then in the end, I hope that you will see how they all fit together, how they all cohere as this seamless fabric. That's the plan anyway. So with that in mind, let's read our text. This is John Chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Um, I'm actually a little bit colder than I realized, than I, than I had hoped. Let me put on my jacket. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad 
when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. This is the word of God. And so I have four points in the sermon. Number one, we're going to look at the resurrection. Number two, we're going to look at the Great Commission. Number three, we're going to look at the gift of the Spirit. And then finally, we're going to look at the authority of the church, the authority and the ministry of the church. So let's begin. Number one, the resurrection. And here I want to break it into two parts. We're going to look at the historicity of the resurrection, and then we're going to look at the meaning of the resurrection. So first, the historicity. So in the text, the disciples are gathered together, and the crucial detail is that they are meeting behind locked doors. Okay, The doors are locked. Why? Because their master has just been crucified. And so the disciples are confused. They are in a state of shock. They are deeply afraid. But what is curious about the story is that at this point in the text, the disciples have already received several reports of the resurrection. If you remember, Peter and John, they ran and they saw the empty tomb. They saw the linen strips lying, right, in order, still folded up as if the body had just passed through them. How can that be explained? And then Mary Magdalene comes. And according to the other synoptic gospels, along with other women, they all report that they saw the risen Lord. They spoke to him. They touched him. And then you have Jesus' previous statements that after three days he will rise from the dead. And so you would almost expect, right? Like, why didn't the disciples say, of course, yes, Jesus is risen from the dead. No doubt in my mind, I always expected it. I knew it would happen. Instead, Why are they cowering in unbelief? Why are they paralyzed with fear? One of the stories that modern people give to explain the resurrection is they say, well, you know, the ancient world was pre-scientific. They lived in a world full of magic and miracles. And so the people were easily given to superstition. They just accepted tall tales of people rising from the dead. The problem with that theory is that it goes against everything we know about the ancient world. N.T. Wright, who is a world-class scholar, he wrote a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And if you will permit me, uh, I wanted to just do some shameless bragging. I brought the book with me, okay? Look at this beast. It's a thousand pages long. And I've read this book cover to cover twice, including all the footnotes. 
And I want you to know it, it has profoundly influenced my understanding and thinking. And it's a really well-respected book. And N.T. Wright, the first, I don't know, quarter of the book or so, he does an exhaustive survey of ancient writings. And he shows, I think, pretty conclusively that in the Greco-Roman world, without exception, there was no possibility of resurrection. There was not a single claim in all of ancient literature that someone rose from the dead, not in any of the historical records or any of the historical accounts, nor any of the myths. You don't even see that in the myths. Because while ancient people didn't have the benefits of modern medicine, they knew that once somebody died, they stayed dead. Now, what about the Greek world? I mean, what about the uh, Jewish world? Now, Orthodox Jews absolutely believed in the resurrection, but they believed it would happen at the end of human history, that it would accompany Judgment Day and the renewal of all creation, and that it would happen to all of God's people. And so the idea that a single person in the middle of history, when corruption and evil is still ongoing, when the Roman Empire still stands and is still occupying the promised land, that the resurrection of a single person could happen in that situation was just incomprehensible to the Jewish people. And so I want you to know that the story John gives us is utterly realistic. The disciples are filled with fear and unbelief. And all the reports of the resurrection are met with deep skepticism because it contradicted everything that they had ever been taught, everything they knew was possible. And it was only because the evidence was overwhelming. It was only because they saw Jesus in the flesh. They touched his wounds, his hands and his side. It was because they were confronted with this irrefutable evidence, not just once, but repeatedly over and over again, over a 40-day period, and not just to a small handful of people, but to hundreds of people who saw the risen Lord, who touched him, who spoke with him, who ate meals with him. They believed. They believed at the risk of their life and their belief launched them out into the world, into the Christian mission. And that belief ultimately cost them their lives. I want you to know this is history. This is not some made up fable. This is not some legendary tale that developed slowly from the mists of time. You know, that's the other uh, explanation that people have. People will say, well, you know, the Bible was written centuries and centuries after the fact. And there was an original reality, original history of this charismatic Jewish uh, prophet 
who told amazing teachings and who seemingly performed miracles. But then what happened is over the centuries, his followers began to embellish the tales and they became more and more fantastical until at last he was rising from the dead. The problem with that story is that the New Testament documents were written too early for that because they were all written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. You need to understand that the earliest New Testament documents that we possess are in fact not the Gospels. The four Gospels are among the last books of the New Testament. But the earliest documents are actually the epistles. And what's interesting about the epistles is that the epistles were written to the churches on the ground, so to speak, right? They were written as developments were happening, as problems and crises were, were unfolding in the moment, right? And so the epistles are a wonderful glimpse into the development and the story of the early church in its earliest decades. We scholars believe that uh, Galatians was the first epistle or among the first epistles written by Paul and they estimate that it was written about 12 or 15 years after the fact, after the resurrection. And all the epistles, virtually all the epistles, cite the resurrection. They speak about the resurrection. This was not a doctrine that was developed later on in the church's history. The early Christians believed in the resurrection from the beginning. Another book that um, I would recommend to you, since I'm doing show and tell today, um, is the New Testament documents by F.F. Bruce. F.F. Bruce is another world-class scholar. I highly recommend this short little book. And in this book, F.F. Bruce talks about how we have hundreds of papyrus copies of the New Testament scattered throughout the, the Mediterranean world. And when you consider the geographic spread, when you take into account the sheer number of copies that we possess, many of whom were, many of which were written in the early 100s, the most famous one is a document called P52. P52 is a papyrus copy, a papyrus fragment, just about this big. It has fragments of John 18 written on. It was discovered in the deserts of Egypt, which is the arid climate preserved this papyrus copy. And scholars estimate that P52 was composed, was, was copied somewhere around 100 to 125 AD. Some scholars would even put it before 100. We are now talking about mere decades from when the original Gospel of John was written, which shows us that the New Testament was written too early to be fables. And because they were basically contemporaneous with the events that they describe, they would have been easily refutable. There would have been people who said, listen, I was in Jerusalem at the time these events described. These are not secret, you know, isolated events in some far off desert. It happened in Jerusalem during Passover in which estimated half a million to a million pilgrims would stream into the city. This is a major public event. Jesus was crucified in public. People would have been able to refute the stories. They would have said that did not happen. 
And so the early church would have never been launched if the New Testament documents themselves did not have historical veracity. So that's the first point, the historicity of the resurrection. The second point, second part is what did the resurrection mean? So just as important as the question, did it happen, is the question, what does it mean? And I want you to know this is a huge question. And you can almost say all of Christianity can be summarized as an answer to the question. And today, let me just give you a preliminary sketch of the answer. And it's right here in the passage. Because what is the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples? He says, peace be with you. Actually, he says it twice. He says it at the end of verse 19 and then at the beginning of verse 21. He says, peace be with you. Now, on the surface, that was actually a customary greeting in that culture. But in the Gospel of John, it has a much deeper meaning. Because the word peace has deep biblical resonance. It comes from the Hebrew word shalom. And many of you may know this, but shalom doesn't just mean the absence of war and conflict. It's a much more comprehensive, holistic word. It means deep harmony and wholeness. It means absolute healing and restoration. Shalom means reconciliation, justice, prosperity. It's the state of total well-being, physical, emotional, sociological. And so that's what Jesus was saying. He's saying, I bring you peace. John 14, 27, my peace I give to you. Shalom. Do you understand how significant that is? You know, a lot of people think of Christianity as basically an escape religion. What do I mean by an escape religion? So people think what Christianity says is that this world is lost. This world is full of wickedness and decay. But if you believe in Jesus, then when you die, you go to heaven. And if that's your understanding of the gospel, if that's your paradigm, then you can think of the Christian faith as a kind of life jacket. And so you have this life jacket on and this world then is like a ship that's going down. So imagine that you are on the deck of the Titanic one hour before it hits the iceberg and you're wearing a life jacket and you look around and the people are oblivious. They don't know the danger that they're in. And so they carry on as if nothing is wrong. Um, they're, they're carrying on with their parties and, and frivolities. And in fact, you decide, you know, what's the harm of joining in the party and participating and enjoying the festivities? Because in the end, it doesn't matter. It's all going down with the ship, but you have a life jacket on. So that's Christianity as an escape religion. But the resurrection says Christianity is a 
rescue religion. That Jesus came to rescue this world from death, poverty, and injustice. And therefore, this world, this life, matters. Because this world that we see all around us will be redeemed, will be renewed. Because think about it, how does the story end in the Bible? In Revelation 21, the Apostle John says, Behold, I saw a new heavens, and heavens here means skies or firmament. I saw the new heavens and the new earth. Notice that the earth is not wiped away or destroyed, but the earth is made new. You see, because Jesus' body rose from the grave, because it was a bodily resurrection, not just a, a spiritual resurrection or spirit resurrection, it means that this physical creation will be rescued, will be restored. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. You know, in the ancient world, when you have the first fruit, it means the rest of the harvest is coming. It means that this bodily creation, this physical world, and all the good that is in it, everything that is beautiful, everything that you do, every endeavor, every project that you engage in that is for the glory of God will last and will be redeemed. This is why Paul in the end of 1 Corinthians 15 says, your labors are not in vain. Everything matters in this life. Do you understand? That's what the resurrection is saying. The second point, the Great Commission. So in verse 21, Jesus says, Peace be with you. And then he says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So this is John's version of the Great Commission that we also see in Matthew chapter 28. And you know, in Matthew, you have the risen Christ who says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Have you noticed that in both John and in Matthew, the Great Commission is put right next to the resurrection. You know, we typically isolate those two events. We think of them as separate things, but they are deeply interconnected. Do you know why? Because the resurrection is the fulcrum between Jesus' mission and ours. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father, the word sent is the Latin word missio, it's where we get our word mission. Just as the Father sent the Son on mission, so also Jesus sends the church. The very purpose of the church, therefore, is to be on mission, to be His witnesses to make disciples so that mission is not just an activity inside the church. It's not just a department or a ministry that we do, but mission is who we are. It's the very purpose of our existence. 
Right now, um, Christina and I are watching a Netflix show called The Crown. It's a really great show. And it's about the British royal family. And one of the main characters is Princess Margaret. Princess Margaret is the younger sister of Queen Elizabeth. And she has an awkward role because she's a very important member of the royal family. But she has no official duties. And so Princess Margaret, she lives this life of absolute luxury and comfort where everyone caters to her every need. And all she does is she goes to parties, she goes to these exotic resort locations, and her whole life is this basically this, this permanent vacation Now, on the surface, it sounds like an attractive life. It sounds like the kind of life that we daydream about, that our retirement will look like. But in this show, her life is completely devoid of purpose. Her life has no usefulness to it. She's not useful to her family. She's not useful to British society. All she does with her life is she indulges. And in the show, she is deeply unhappy. She is deeply miserable. And at one point in the show, she tries to commit suicide. She tries to end her life. Because listen to me, you cannot live without meaning. We are meaning-driven creatures. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. But I think so many of us, we hide our lamp underneath a basket. We keep our head down at work. We mind our own business and we just want to make it to the end of the day so we can get to our hobbies but we are denying the purpose of our lives. I want you to know that the church exists not for our own comfort or security, but we have been sent on mission. What is our mission? Our mission is to follow Jesus and to help others follow Him. Our mission is to bring about the obedience of the nations to be agents of shalom, to bring peace and justice for this world, this world that matters. Do you see your workplace? Do you see your friendships? Do you see your family life through that lens? You know, there's a very profound passage in Isaiah chapter 6 where the prophet Isaiah is brought into the very throne room of God. And God says to Isaiah, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah replies, Here am I. Send me. Send me. I want you to know that when you discover that calling, your life will be filled with joy.
and meaning and purpose. I want you to know that Jesus has sent you. You are on mission. So that's the second point. The third point, the gift of the Spirit. In verse 22, it says, And when Jesus had said this, He breathed on them. Very symbolic gesture. And He said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So along with the Great Commission is the gift of the Spirit. Because the Spirit empowers and equips us for ministry. Listen to Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which is Luke's version of the Great Commission. Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we see this empowerment all throughout the book of Acts where the Spirit gives faith and boldness to God's people. For example, Acts 4:31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 6, 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. And so our mission can only be accomplished by the Spirit. And we can spend all day talking about this. There's so many facets and elements to the empowerment of the Spirit. But let me distill it down to a single point. It all comes down to this. The main thing the Spirit does is that the Spirit communicates to our hearts the presence of God. Do you guys remember in the upper room, the Gospel of John uh, gives us this uh, discourse, this uh, teaching of Jesus in the upper room, which we call the upper room discourse. It actually occupies five chapters in the Gospel of John, 25% of the Gospel. Um, And in many ways, uh, it's the reason why I wanted to preach through the Gospel of John so we can look at it and, uh, and unpack it It's one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. And in the upper room, Jesus tells his disciples, I am going to leave you. I am going to depart from you. He's talking about the cross. And the disciples are distraught. How can they go on without their master and teacher? And then Jesus says something astonishing. He says, it is better for you that I go away so that I can send another helper, another comforter. The Greek word there is paraclete, so that I could send you the Holy Spirit. Because when you have the Spirit, you have Jesus. You have His love. You have His power. In John 16, this is in the Upper Room Discourse, verses 14 through 15, Jesus says this, listen. The Spirit will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. What does Jesus possess? What is He talking about here? You see, from all of eternity, 
the Son has the love of the Father. You guys remember that amazing passage in John chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus gives us a glimpse of the, of the inner life of the Trinity. And he says, the Son is in the bosom of the Father. It's an incredible image of the life of the Trinity, of the love inside the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit takes that intimate, eternal love and He communicates it to our hearts. The reason our lives are so full of weakness and fear, the reason why so many of us feel lost and angry, the reason why so many of us lack generosity in our lives, why we're workaholics and we we have no boundaries. The reason why it feels like our lives are just spinning out of control and we struggle with addictions is because we don't know the love of God. We don't know that He loves us. And instead we live as if we're all alone in this world. You know, in Matthew's version of the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to know that if you have Jesus, If you have his love, there is nothing you cannot do. And your life will be full of strength and courage. Let's go to the fourth point, the authority of the church. In verse 23, the last thing Jesus says, If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone... It is withheld. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the ministry of the gospel is to declare the forgiveness of sins and that ministry belongs to the church. This is the keys of the kingdom. I know this is a difficult teaching in our culture. Because Jesus is talking about the authority of the church. He's talking about the authority of that ch- of the church. And that authority in our culture is suspect. It is deeply mistrusted. And I think in large part for good reason. Because it has been so often abused. I don't know if you saw just this past week, but the uh, Roman Catholic Church issued a long-awaited report on the pre-sex scandal that has been roiling the Catholic Church for many decades. And what is unique about this report is that it was headed up and written by a lay person um, who who is not beholden to the church. And this lay person had, and their team had, full access to all the internal records inside the church. This report was scathing. And the bombshell finding of the report is that 
the highest levels of church hierarchy. So we're talking about the cardinals and we're talking about the popes. What this report found is that Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict, Pope Francis, they all knew. They had been receiving reports for decades and they turned a blind eye and they participated in a cover-up. This is not just the Catholic Church. We can talk about Protestant churches, the scandals of which are too numerous to talk about. And so what do we do with this? How do we reconcile our experiences, and for so many of us, traumatic experiences, with this teaching? Because I want to be crystal clear about this. In this teaching, Jesus has given the church the authority to grant and to withhold forgiveness. So the first thing is to recognize that this is not an isolated teaching. You find this all throughout the New Testament. So for example, you have Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is a very famous chapter. It's Jesus' instructions on the steps to be taken in church discipline and ultimately the process of excommunication. And then in that passage, in verse 18, he says this, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is Jesus saying? He's saying basically the same thing as in verse 23 in our passage. He's saying that the church has the authority to declare whether or not someone is a Christian. In other words, the power to name a Christian belongs to the church and not to the individuals themselves. I know this is a difficult teaching and it really rubs against our culture so let me try to make the case for it. Let me, let me try. If you look at the scriptures, it tells us that the Christian life is communal and it is interdependent because salvation puts you into community so that the Christian life is to be lived together. And community means mutual ties mutual obligations that we have towards one another. And you know, part of that is very attractive to modern Americans. Very attractive. So for example, you have a passage like 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, where John says, if anyone, listen to this, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so what this is saying is that Christian community imposes obligations on you so that no one can say, this is my money. Because in a deep sense, your money belongs also to the community so that no one can isolate themselves from the sufferings of others. I believe this resonates in our culture 
especially now. For the past several months, there has been an intense discussion about justice, about inclusion, about mutual belonging, so that the sufferings of one group belong to us all, so that you cannot segment and partition your own well-being from the well-being of others. You know, one of my favorite uh, metaphors for this, one of my favorite expressions is, you can't just clean your corner of the swimming pool. Right? You can't ignore what's going on in other corners of the swimming pool because don't you see, we're all in the same pool. It's, we're all in the same water together. That is a very biblical idea that we belong to each other, that we are bound to one another. But if I can offer a critique, if I can offer a critique, we are not consistent in our ethic. We are not consistent. Because when it comes to our spirituality, suddenly we become American individualists. When it comes to our relationship to God or our personal morality, particularly our sex lives, it becomes a private matter and everyone should just do their own thing. And the Bible is saying, you must not do that. Just like the community has a stake in your economic life and in your political life, so also the community has a stake in your moral life and in your spiritual life. You cannot divide these two things. You cannot compartmentalize your life. You are either all in community or you are out. How do you know that you are a Christian? Not only because you have faith, but also because the church recognizes your faith. And the church has a corporate communal sign for that recognition. This is called the sacrament of baptism. And if the church can recognize your faith, what Jesus is teaching us is that the church can also withdraw that recognition. This is what we call excommunication. Let me be clear, excommunication does not mean that you shun someone. It does not mean that you cut off relationships or friendship with that person. It simply means that you take away the name of Christian from that brother or from that sister. And then it has implications for the other church, for the other sacrament of the church, which is communion, which is uh, the Lord's table, which is a table of fellowship they are to be barred from that table. And we are to do this not punitively, but always and only ministerially as a way to shake them up, shake them awake from their spiritual slumber. It's a way for the church to tell somebody, you're not living like a Christian. We don't see repentance in your life. Because you know, all of the Christian life is repentance. And if somebody holds on stubbornly to their sins and refuses to repent, then the church, to warn that brother, as an act of love to that brother, we have to take away the name of Christian from them. 
This is scary. And I speak of it with great trepidation. It is an awesome responsibility. The keys of the kingdom. And we must engage in it soberly, with humility, always with gentleness, full of love. And this is going to sound a little bit strange. Um, I told this to my membership class last week, but I look forward to the opportunity when we can do this. Because in the history of our church, it has never been done. Every time we have started down the process, the person has always withdrawn their membership and left the church. And I hope that when the moment comes, that the elders will take courage and the person will respond with repentance and then they will be restored into the fellowship of the church. But you know, we can do this with humility and love, but that doesn't completely address our fears. It's a scary thing to belong to the church. It requires vulnerability. And you have to give up your autonomy. And I think for so many of us, we're in the church, but we're always holding on to the ripcord. Do you know what I'm saying? Just in case things get really bad in the church, we'll just parachute out, parachute out of it. And so why should we entrust ourselves to the church? Let me close with this final reflection. When Jesus shows himself to his disciples, notice he shows them his wounds. Isn't that remarkable? Because this is Jesus' glorified body. Remember, the resurrection means complete healing, complete restoration, and yet his body bears the wounds of the cross. What does that mean? It means this, that forever Jesus will be the lamb who was slain. How do we know that Jesus loves us? Because he laid down his life for us. And if he gave himself so completely without reservation to us, we can give ourselves completely to him and to each other. I want you to know that if you want to belong to him, you have to let go of your claim to self-determination. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we want to bear fruit in our lives. We want to live lives full of purpose, on mission, to bring about the obedience of the nations. Empower us with the Spirit. Communicate and impress into our hearts your love and your presence. Lord, we pray that you would use this church, Indelible Grace Church, this jar of clay, full of frailty and human weakness, for your glory, 
May we be the light of the world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.